The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. There are a lot of things that you know you might hear about or read about with respect to entrepreneurship that gives it an allure. But when you actually roll up your sleeves and actually get into the practice of it, it's a ton of work. Abe Ankuma had never touched a computer before he arrived at Caltech in 1997, but quickly became captivated and decided to major in computer science. Now he's the co-founder and CEO of Nyansa, a Silicon Valley startup that monitors the health of wireless networks. An immigrant from Ghana raised by hopeful entrepreneurs, he has the kind of story that has fueled Silicon Valley for decades. I'm John Fort from CNBC, and you're listening to the Fort Knox podcast, Rich Ideas and Powerful People. I do this weekly, bringing you the highest achievers. We're going to learn how the very best climb to the top and pull out lessons along the way. If that sounds good to you, make this a habit. Apple's podcast app is the most popular way to do that, but there are all kinds of ways. Mainly, I just want you to subscribe, and the internet can do the work for you. I met Abe at the NASDAQ market site in Times Square and talked to him about his journey and the experiences that paved the way for what he's working on now. Here's Abe Ankuma. So I went to high school in Ghana. So I went to an all-boys uh, boarding high school in Ghana in a, a town outside of the capital city called Cape Coast. It's a high school called Infantspin. And what was that like? It was, pretty, it was, it was a pretty unique experience. It's, um, again, all-boys boarding school, lots of hazing, um, but also probably one of the places where you could build on a lot of foundational principles, right? I mean, I moved almost three hours away from home, right? Mm. And so... At what age did you um, first do uh, Let's say I, moved, I went to high school when I was 15, mm. right? So moved about three hours away from home, um, all boys school, boarding school, um, and you just, you know, had to not just get acclimated to sort of a new environment and being far away from home, it was a really rigorous curriculum, right? And so basically, you know, um, waking up super early in the morning, right? Um, as an all-boys boarding school, we all had chores in the morning. Likewise. Um, so we were assigned different chores. One of them included, actually, we cleaned up our own campus, right? And so, you know, my class was assigned to, you know, one side of campus. We would pick, pick up leaves, sweep parts of the campus, and you had to finish that in time to make it, you know, go back, take a shower, and make it to class in time, right? Um, and so it was pretty regimented. It was pretty regimented, but boy, does it build character, right? It builds character in the sense that you have to, you, you know, you learned a lot about time management. You learned a lot about working with teams together. You learned a lot about yourself, right? And so sort of, you know, going away from home at the age of 15 really was very foundational for me. I, I learned a lot about myself. I learned a lot about working with other people. And um, it frankly, I think, became the foundation for when I decided to then leave Ghana to come to the United States for college. You know, my freshman year in college, a lot of folks, you know, this was the first time they had lived away from home. And, mm. you, know, this, you know, this was just, you know, <laughs> sort of an extension of me living away from home, albeit much further away. What else was different? Um, other than you go from 
three hours away to, gosh, I imagine closer to 30. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> once, once you yeah. do all the transfers yeah, exactly. that you have Door to do to door to get for there, sure. yeah. right? Um, what else was different about the American experience, the California experience in what must have been what, the mid-90s? Yeah, so yeah, yeah I, I, I started college in 97. Um, the experience was, so Caltech is a very unique place, right? So Caltech um, has an extremely, I mean, there are more graduate students and faculty members than undergrads, uh, just to kind of set some context. Mm. Um, and it, it's an extremely sort of rigorous curriculum. And you, I, I showed up at Caltech with other kids whom had been using computers, you know, when they were five, right? You know, whom, whom had been building their own video games at a much younger age. Um, but the Caltech experience was also, you know, for me, it, it allowed me to push myself. It allowed me to, it exposed me to so much, right? The Caltech experience, um, right from my freshman year after getting exposed to computers, um, I basically decided that, you know what, I'm going to, you know, in addition to electrical engineering, I'm going to major in computer science, which back then was a little bit of an insane concept, being the, you know, for the very simple matter that, you know, I had just gotten exposed to computers. Um, but um, there was a really good support system. Caltech offered a really good support system. Um, what convinced you to major in computer science? Um, so, <laughs> I'm trying to think through this. I would say, you know, you know, to, to my earlier point of getting exposed to computers and getting excited about them, for me, sort of majoring in computer science on so many levels felt like a rite of passage, right? I was intrigued by, you know, the, you know, the subject matter. Um, I had gotten exposed to computers and I wanted to, frankly, understand not just how they worked at the theoretical level, but actually really get my hands dirty with it, right? Um, and sort of through that journey, whether it was you know, I decided to major in computer science, one, not entirely sure whether I wanted to become a software developer, but I knew I wanted to do something in tech, right? And so to sort of cover all bases, um, I did, you know, I majored in electrical engineering and also added computer science to boot. Um, and the, you know, there were a fair number of overlapping classes as well, so why not? Um, but for me, um, you know, my interest in computer science actually goes further back to some of the exposure and, and when I ask myself, how do these things even work, it actually goes back to thinking about the semiconductor space, right? So I had, you know, has, you know I had read enough <clears throat> about the semiconductor space. And for me, sort of computer science really was a layer on top of it. And so my electrical engineering background actually involved uh, something called VLSI, which is how you design large-scale um, integrated circuits. And for good measure, I ended up uh, studying computer science on top of it, which was basically the practical applications of programming integrated circuits, if you may. Tell me about Ghana. What are some of your earliest memories of growing up in Ghana? Um, sights, sounds, flavors? Yeah, yeah. Um, so I'm the youngest of uh, five children, mm -hmm. right? And so you know, grew up in a Christian household. Um, and in, in terms of, and so, you know, my, my parents, you know, were entrepreneurs, but also liked to entertain. And so, you know, one of the, my very early memories was a home being filled with, filled with guests, whether these were um, family friends who were visiting or whether these were actually tourists uh, visiting Ghana for whom my parents would throw home luncheons for. Hmm. Um, so that, that was kind of one very sort of distinct and unique memory for me growing up. Um, 
another aspect of growing up was, you know, my, my childhood friendships, right? So even before high school, just I ended up, you know, having sort of a very strong community of friends that, you know, would either go out and play soccer together or, you know, you know just, you know, and, you know, run around the neighborhoods together. <laughs> um, but yeah, my memories of Ghana um, really have a lot to do with sort of the personal bonds and the human interactions um, and family. Your parents uh, started a travel agency. They did. Why? Um, <laughs> so my parents, my, my parents started the travel agency partly because my dad, um, over 50 years ago, recognized that, and this was obviously before the internet, <laughs> right? And so recognized that, you know, my dad used to work for Pan American Airlines. Mm. Um, you know, he talk about going way back, right? Yeah, Pan and he was a cargo manager for Pan Am. And very often, tourists would show up at the airport and ask him, hey, what should we do um, while we're here? Right, although fly to Ghana with maybe a very sort of sparse itinerary and ask him, do you have any ideas what we should do? And so that led to an idea for my dad. He said, wait a second, you know, over and over again, I see this theme of people showing up in Ghana, not necessarily knowing every single thing they want to do. Mm. And so he said to my mom, hey, you know what? We should open a, a travel agency, but I'm not going to quit my job yet. And so he actually so my, he convinced my mom whom before this was um, a seamstress. But she, she convinced my mom to actually set up a table at one of the, um, one of the, uh, one of the very popular hotels. And so every time um, a, a tourist would show up at the, at the airport and said, hey, what should we do? My dad would basically say to them, you know what, you should go to this hotel. The hotel was called Continental Hotel at the time. Mm -hmm. There's a travel agency, which was my mom. <laughs> go talk to her and she will um, set you up with an itinerary. And so they started the travel agency by recognizing a need and being very scrappy enough to say, okay, how do we actually kind of get this thing off the ground and let's see where this takes us. And, you know, it, the business then grew to become a very, you know, it was the first travel agency in Ghana and it grew to become a very thriving business. That put me through all my siblings, frankly, through, um, you know, elementary school, high school, and college. Wow. What, what were their skills that particularly help them succeed in that business? Personality, education, insight, what was it that, that allowed them to do that? Yeah, that, that's, that's a really good question. I, I would say, you know, my dad had a certain set of skills and my mom had a certain set of skills that were very complementary, mm -hmm. right? So for my mom, my mom is one of the most outgoing people you'd ever meet, right? She can pick up and have a conversation with anyone, right? And she's also um, very methodical, right, when it comes to planning and putting events together and, and entertaining. And so that was kind of her strength. Mm -hmm. uh, for my dad, I'll, I'll call my dad sort of the strategic tech, you know, tech, technician, if you may, right? Mm -hmm. And so he had a way about him of basically, um, similar to my mom on, on that level at least, being able to sort of interact with people and putting them at ease. Um, he had a very strong um, um, and, and a quiet pride about him that really wanted him to show the world um, and tourists, for that matter, what Ghana had to offer, right? And, and, and you know, they started this business just after Ghana had become independent, um, you know, um, had just become independent. And so there was a lot of sort of, you know, Ghanaian pride and all of those things that f for my parents, 
you know, it, it just happened to be sort of at the right place at the right time with, with my dad being at Panam, recognizing this need. And both of them were also very, very determined people, right? Mm -hmm. And so, um, and, and you know. What was the source of that determination? I mean, they, oh. they hadn't come up under this period of independence, so I imagine they had some challenges. Yes, yeah, for sure. So both parents grew up outside the capital city, right? Um, they grew up in, with very, very, with very modest or humble, or in, with very humble beginnings. My dad put himself through school, right? Um, he actually had to go out, sell books, um, and some of the proceeds from selling books was actually what he used to pay for his school tuition. And so when you grew up in sort of very sort of hard circumstances like that, it does something to sort of your outlook on life. Right, it, and, 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 and you know, one, one of the things that, you know, in hindsight, I find uh, interesting and humbling is while they grew up in very different, uh, difficult circumstances, that never made them negative about anything. They always maintained sort of a very positive, gregarious outlook on life. Yeah. And in so many ways, I think they passed that on to all their children. So the same force and technology that has led you to Caltech, to become an entrepreneur after um, uh, uh, cold calling a CEO, I did, uh, <laughs> and, I did. And, and asking you know for a job to assist him. <coughs> that same force really destroyed a lot of travel agencies. It did. What what happened to your parents' business it, it, it in the did, technological wave? Absolutely. Um, so I'll say, in so many ways, the internet disintermediated travel agencies. Right. Um, whether it was people actually being able to um, travel to any place and actually know what they wanted to do before they showed up, right? And that in disintermediation required my parents' business to adapt. I fr and, and in some places they adapted, in some places they did not, right? And I would say ge generally businesses, um, and most countries for that matter, just from a succession planning standpoint, th that's sort of not, a not the core foundation, right? But mm -hmm. yes, technology for sure, um, disintermediated that, that business, and in some places, um, you know, the business was able to adapt and sort of find other business streams. In other places, you just had to walk away from knowing that you know what this aspect of the, of the business was no longer going to thrive. So, how are they doing? Um, so, unfortunately, both parents are deceased. Uh. Um, but the travel agency, um, as, after my parents, you know, after my dad got sick and everything else. We basically sort of wound down the operations and used the assets for other things like a car rental business. Oh, so that's quite a legacy they left you then Absolutely. to be able to do that and to be able to, to come over here and start what you have. You can tell that one of Abe's talents is being able to recognize other people's talents and how they might help a team. That translates pretty well into the work of trying to get a startup off the ground. Tell me about getting together with your co-founders at Nyanza. What was it, maybe similar complementary skills or outlooks that made you guys feel like you should work together? Yeah, yeah, so I got introduced um, to Anand, who is one of my co-founders and, and, and our CTO, um, through a mutual friend. We got introduced through a mutual friend. Anand was actually still on the East Coast. I was in California. Um, Anand, um, went to MIT for his PhD, had left um, another startup on the East Coast and was kind of thinking about a couple of new ideas. Mm -hmm. um, the mutual friend who introduced us basically said, hey, 
you guys keep talking about networking and how you think networking is going to change and keep pontificating about these things. I think you two should talk. Um, so finally, Anand and I actually met in person. And even the way we met in person was a little ironic because I happened to be going to Toronto. Anand was living in Boston. And I said to Anand, I'm going to be in Toronto. Do you want to meet? Not expecting him to take me up on the offer. He said, sure. And he, get, he gets in the car and drives for eight hours. Wow. He gets in the car and drives for eight hours from Boston to Toronto. I'm in Toronto for a business trip. We meet around 6 o'clock to, you know, to grab dinner. And I told my wife, hey, I'm going to meet this guy that I got introduced to for, call it an hour, hour and a half. We ended up speaking for six hours. <laughs> we ended up speaking for six hours. I turned my phone over. I didn't even realize, you know, my wife had been calling me or what time it was. Um, but for Anand specifically, and I'll talk about Dan next, but for Anand specifically, it was like a meeting of the minds, right? We, we had a number of very complementary skills. Anand was sort of very sort of deep technical thinker who could take sort of unstructured problems and translate them to something with a technical structure and a technical solution around it, right? Mm. So that was Anand's strength. Mm -hmm. The other strength that he had was he was also very persuasive from a technical standpoint, right? Um, you could take a problem that someone would say, you know what, this problem can't be solved, or there's only one way of solving this problem. And Anand would say, no, wait a minute. The, how about thinking about it this way, right? And so that's kind of how, you know, Anand and my interaction started. And, you know, I've been fortunate um, whether it's, you know, it was my time at Caltech or everything else I did in between before Nyanza, to have worked with some very talented technical folks. And Anand certainly was up there, right? And just in, in terms of his ability to kind of see through sort of very unstructured problems and make sense out of them. Mm. On the other hand, Dan, we call Dan the executioner, <laughs> right? <laughs> He's the executioner from the standpoint that, so Dan and Anand actually were at MIT together. They were in the same research program or graduate program. Um, and Dan had come into the real world earlier than Anand had. Anand stuck around and got his PhD. Dan, after his master's, you know, um, moved to the Bay Area and actually started working at a number of well-known um, technology companies. And so, and so, you know, Dan's, um, when, when I met Dan, I asked Anand, hey, who's one of the best engineers you've ever worked with? And without flinching, he said, Dan. And I said, where does Dan live? And he said, Dan lives in the Bay Area. I said, well, why are you holding out on me? Let's <laughs> let me introduce me to the guy. Yeah. And so, you know, Dan and his, you know, Dan is kind of one of these very methodical guys who can take a problem once it's, you know, it's clearly defined for him, execute, and also build an engineering te team around him, right? Build an engineering team that can solve some pretty sort of multi-disciplinary um, cross-functional problems, right? So that's sort of um, kind of how the three of us came together. Now, in terms of, it's, it's also really important for founding teams to kind of look for ways to complement each other, mm -hmm. right? Because on so many ways, <laughs> I like to say that, you know, starting a company is like raising a young family, right? In the sense that, you know, you're learning together, right? For us, as first-time entrepreneurs, this was actually the first time we were working together, right? right. Um, there are a lot of things that, you know, you might hear about or read about with respect to entrepreneurship, that gives it an allure. But when you actually roll up your sleeves and actually get into the practice of it, it's a ton of work, right? And you, you want to surround yourselves and work with a team that can learn from each other, can support each other, can be patient with each other, but also, when push comes to shove, can also call each other out and hold each other accountable, right? And in Dan and Ann, and as kind of the founding team at Jansa, that's what I felt we found in each other. Mm. 
how did the idea itself come together? Did you come with the idea? Did it bubble up from conversations between all of you? <laughs> the idea from the answer actually came from a couple of observations at the Enterprise Access, right? And so with the Enterprise Access, just like we were talking about earlier, there are a number of very fundamental changes. One of those changes is something called BYOD, or just mobile devices. That people, are, bringing their people bringing their own, own iPhones, you know, Galaxy, whatever, into the office and expecting to use them for work, bringing their own laptops in there. Sometimes there's security software on them, sometimes there's not. Sometimes the software running on them was put on there by the enterprise, sometimes it wasn't. So the Precisely. question is, how do we protect Precisely. the workplace Precisely. against all these weird things coming on and off Precisely. the network, right? Precisely, and, and, and that the security posture for BYOD was kind of the thing that drove people nuts <laughs> seven, eight years ago. Right. right. Now, BYOD also has a number of other unintended consequences. One of them is tied to user experience. The fact that people are bringing all these different devices also means that enterprise IT has to contend with supporting all these heterogeneous devices. Mm -hmm. BYOD is also just the tip of the iceberg when you think about other, another big trend, IoT. Right. right. Internet now, of Things. The Internet of Things, right? And Which to most people, I don't know. I, I've never had like a non-work-related conversation and used the phrase Internet of Things. I yeah, don't know if yeah. real people <laughs> even say that. That's right. <laughs> but we're talking about these Apple Watches, Samsung Watches, these Amazon Echoes and Google Homes, and all these non-computer, non-phone things that are now on the Internet in some form or another connecting to things and... Who knows what they're doing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, 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 and the Internet of, of Things um, slash IoT has a couple of different use cases, right? There's the quote-unquote consumer use case, mm -hmm. which is, you know, whether it's, you know, my Apple Watch, whether it's the Nest device I have at home, whether it is... Um, my Internet TV. You know, my Internet TV, whether it's a Peloton bicycle you might have at home. Right. There's the enterprise aspect of the Internet of Things as well. Right, and so, and those use cases are actually, I think, going to be pre become pretty profound because every industry has its own set of call it Internet of Things applications that businesses are actually using in order to get a competitive edge. Yeah, right? I mean, it's crazy. Uh, now you've got uh, Caterpillar, the uh, company that's got heavy equipment out there building stuff. They're trying to. Uh, allow people to use construction equipment as a service, Yep. right? And it's the Internet of Things that allows them to do that. Hey, you know where that bulldozer is and what it's doing, and so you can you can charge by the dig if you want to yep. instead of yep. making yep. people yep. buy the whole that's, bulldozer. That's that's precisely. And so, BYOD, I, uh, uh, you know, the bring your own device movement, which is now even sort of tethered to the Internet of Things movement within the enterprise, started to create. A, you know, a set of challenges for enterprise IT teams, right? Mm -hmm. Because enterprise IT teams traditionally were used to managing sort of company-issued devices, right? Mm -hmm. They were pretty deterministic, predictable devices. Right. The, this was a Windows device, you know, um, you know with Intel un, un, underneath running the, you know, the operating, um, the compute, the compute, and these devices were well-behaved. But BYOD and IoT changes everything at the enterprise access, right? Going back to my point about sort of every 10 to 12 years, there being an opportunity and, and a set of new challenges that come within environments, that was one aspect. Because it used to be you would decide up front, okay, here are the types of laptops 
that we're going to have on our network. Yep. And we're going to have them on our network because they're going to behave in this way that we like. And so you don't even really have to look after it because you know what they're doing. Yeah. But when you don't know what kind of laptop, what kind of phone, what kind of software they're running is on the network, oh, and by the way, you've got all these weird other kinds of devices connecting. Not only do you not know whether those devices are getting the right kind of service that they should, are they connecting to the network? You don't know what they're doing to your network, right? Precisely, precisely, yeah, precisely. And those devices in hospitals could be, you know, a patient monitoring device. That's kind of an important thing. <laughs> it's, it's, it's life or death. If right? somebody comes in with their <laughs> Apple Watch, you don't want that shutting down, right? The heart monitors. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. On a manufacturing floor, that yeah. could be um, the torque wrench that is actually being used in manufacturing, you know, an electric car. You guys are based in Palo Alto, one of the most expensive places in the universe. <laughs> it I mean, certainly is. It only certainly a little is. bit of hyperbole there <laughs> on my is. part. There's lots of talk these days about building up other tech hubs, and they've always got to have a nickname, usually with Silicon in it. Silicon Alley, Silicon Wadi, Silicon Prairie, Silicon... I still haven't seen anything really approximate what Silicon Valley has, except for Washington State. Seattle, mm -hmm. you know, that mm -hmm. combination of Amazon, Microsoft, and kind of the cloud yep. hub that they've built. Why are you in Palo Alto? Is it, is it just the, the pure momentum and critical mass of networking engineers and talent because you've got Cisco, Aruba, like, oh, Juniper, all that stuff yep. around there, or what? Why don't you yeah. go to Indianapolis? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, so the Silicon Valley, you know, really has a unique ecosystem. Right, um, on, on so many ways, and, and, and Frank, even within Silicon Valley itself, for lack of a better word, we have microclimates or micro right. ecosystems, right? I mean, within the Bay Area itself, you can think about everything happening in San Francisco, you can think about things happening in the peninsula, you can think about things happening in the South Bay. Um, so at a broad level, we ended up in the Bay Area or picked Palo Alto specifically because of the talent. Right, um, Palo Alto Networks. You so, got yeah, yeah, yeah. What else? Yeah. What else so, is so, right in Palo Alto? I, you know, ironically, Palo Alto Networks is actually not based. Not in Palo, in Palo Alto. Alto. <laughs> right, right. But this, this, the general talent pool of the Bay Area was pretty important, mm -hmm. right? Whether it is, um, you know, attracting, um, you know, folks from a, with a networking background who, you know. You know, not to oversimplify it, but who tend to be sort of in the South Bay or in the Peninsula. Right, yeah, because Cisco and Intel are down <laughs> there in San Jose, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whether it is attracting sort of good UI designers, right, who typically tend to be north of Palo Alto, <laughs> kind of San Francisco, right? Mm -hmm. Whether it's attracting folks from a big data analytics background, frankly, who are kind of all over the place, but right. sort of the barriers specifically we picked because of the talent pool. We picked Palo Alto partly for commute convenience, right? We have folks who are coming from further south, and we have a few people coming from further north, San Francisco. And so Palo Alto ended up being sort of a location for us that was convenient. As we grow and scale, who knows where we'll end up? Um, you know, Palo Alto is not so ideal for, you know, af after companies get to beyond a certain size, real estate mm -hmm. is a bear. Um, but the overall Bay Area ecosystem, frankly, for us, was probably the biggest draw was kind of people, um, you know, the talent pool. Um, but that said, you know, I would say a third of the company, you know, of, Nyan, of the team at Nyanza are actually not local, hmm. right? So we do have, you know, a number of folks who are not in the Bay Area who are, whether it's folks, we, we, we have a couple of people in San Diego, we have a, a, f a number of people in Texas, 
Um, we have folks on the East Coast. And so at the end of the day, we're taking the best of what Silicon Valley has to offer, but also being mindful of the fact that our intention is to build a global business, mm. right? And a global business needs to figure out a way to integrate and you know, support, uh, you know, put together a team that comes from different places and that enables us to thrive. Do you get back to Ghana? I do, I do. And so, um, you know, my wife and I have two uh, young kids. And so we look to go to, uh, we look to, go to Ghana um, once a year, sometimes when things get hectic every other year. Um, but we go back quite often. I have an older brother who lives in Ghana and, uh, you know, a lot of friends um, and extended family who live in Ghana as well. How do you see technology bridging the gaps between cultures, whether you're doing business or you're going back to see family and trying to stay connected? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I would say, you know, the you know it's, it's sort of the broad technology landscape has so many different kind of subsegments that when I think about, for example, what we do at Nyanza today, does it have any general applicability in an emerging market like Ghana? Probably not, to be candid. That said, are there technologies that are so critical, and I would say probably in an emerging market, I would say mobile style technologies, whether it's mobile communication technologies, whether it's technologies that allow, sort of, that improve the lives of people, whether it's using technology to sort of deliver health services, whether it's WhatsApp as a very simple piece of technology. That is, you know, you know, <laughs> you know, we have a small project going on in Ghana where we're looking to build a second home, and a lot of it right now is being done over WhatsApp. Hmm. I'm literally, <laughs> you know, coordinating a construction project halfway around the world over WhatsApp with a very trusted <laughs> um, 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 contractor, right? And the trust part is, is quite important. Right. But, but, but broadly speaking, you know, technology has changed so many things, not just, you know, in a place like the United States or, you know, other developed countries, but in, in so many emerging markets, things that were not possible, right? Things that you couldn't even dream about doing, whether it is, you know, um, be, being able to send um, money to a friend in another city over sort of a mobile platform, you can do that today, right? Yeah. Whether it is being able to actually um, have a radiology exam down at a hospital and have a doctor sitting you know, at another part of the country, look at it and actually prescribe, um, you know, pr 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 uh, you know um, pr provide a diagnosis, right? And so from that standpoint, technology has changed so many, um, kind of has really kind of changed the lives of folks. And, it, and even you can think about technology when it comes to education, right? And so now you don't necessarily need to always leave, you know, where you grew up or where you lived to have access to quote-unquote, modern <laughs> education, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, think about the Khan Academy and what it's doing um, all around the world, sure. right? And so from that standpoint, I think so many things that um, sort of technology enables us to do. But that said, you know, technology, you know, people are now talking about, hey, you know, is technology and analytics going to change the workforce, right? Are technologies like self-driving cars, are they going to, you know, disintermediate? right, a, a, a large portion of the workforce. And so there, there's also a lot of thought and thinking being done, or, or I think a lot of thought needs to be put into sort of how do we, as technology progresses, how does it progress in a way that's socially conscious, if you may. Nyanza has raised more than $25 million from investors, including Intel Capital. I'm John Ford from CNBC, and this has been Fort Knox, rich ideas and powerful people. 
subscribe on Apple's podcast app or wherever fine podcasts are distributed. Leave a review if you enjoyed this. Also, subscribe to the Fort Knox channel on YouTube. That's F-O-R-T-T-K-N-O-X dot com slash YouTube. Follow me, John Fort, on Facebook and Twitter. You'll see video from some of these interviews, and you can say hi to me live, usually Wednesdays at 2 p.m. Eastern. There, I tackle some of the most interesting business and economic issues with a little help from my friends at CNBC and from you. Just go to YouTube and uh, search for Fort Knox or go to Facebook or Twitter, search for John Fort. Follow me. You'll figure out what to do from there. Meanwhile, share this. Tell a friend. Drop me a note on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, or FortKnox.com. And as always, thank you for lending an ear. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.